Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Canada, Guinea-Bissau, and Myanmar. Now, we got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to get started. There was a coup attempt in Guinea-Bissau, which is a former Portuguese colony in Africa. Uh, This happened earlier this week. The president claims that the attack on him and his cabinet, uh, which involved a large group of gun-wielding men, was primarily motivated by their involvement with drug trafficking. Now, the president and his cabinet are safe. However, a number of the people involved in the coup and also military and police personnel in Guinea-Bissau have been killed in the fighting. Exactly whether this has any relation to do with drug trafficking or all of that, or whether this is just what the president is claiming, that, that that's still emerging. This This story has just happened. In related coup news, in Myanmar, we are unfortunately noting the anniversary of the successful coup that took place in that country on February the 2nd. Um, in which the military returned to power and imprisoned the president of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the president of that country after being released from a long prison sentence during that country's previous military dictatorship, which lasted for the majority of the late 20th century. Aung San Suu Kyi is likely imprisoned until her death. Uh, She is quite elderly. She's in her mid-80s and is currently facing Uh, four or more years in prison, uh, so it's entirely possible that she will die there and that the military government will maintain its power in Myanmar for quite some time. This ends a roughly 15-year-long experiment in democracy in Myanmar. Turning back to the United States, we have news from Shasta County, California, which is the county in California where Redding, California is located. It's in Northern California, is now going to be controlled by a militia aligned group of far right Republicans. This reporting is coming from the Sacramento Bee, uh, which is a local newspaper in Sacramento, California. This realignment in Shasta, California is the result of a recall election to remove Leonard Morty, a, a former cop in Reading, and also, you know, like just a local business owner type. Um, the people who are recalling him claim that he is a rhino. For those of you unfamiliar with this acronym, it means Republican in name only. So their accusation is that uh, Modi is just a, you know, a fake Republican. He's not really conservative. And that this county, Shasta County, needs to be represented by the extreme right. And it's looking extremely likely that they will successfully take over the county's government. And in so doing, they will create a bastion of right-wing power in arguably the most liberal state in the United States. Now that the right-wing controls the county board, that is, once the recall election goes through and one of the incumbent's opponents takes his seat, then they might be able to stage a bunch of legal challenges and pose other difficulties for the state government of California. Speaking of false elections and terrible election results, the January 6th special committee investigating the attempted coup in 2021 is saying that they're looking at Trump's uh, proposed executive orders to seize voting machines in the wake of his loss in 2020. Uh, This, you know, these potential executive orders or something that I covered last week, and it looks like the January 6th panel is actually paying very close attention to this. Uh, This is a sort of like, 
what did the president know and when did he know it type question. You know, the question here is, did the president himself order the drafting of these documents or did his aides do it on their own? Uh, what kind of meetings were they having to talk about this? Who else was at those meetings? Were people outside of the Trump administration there? Were members of the military there? Were people involved in the state governments of various other states there? Uh, that's the questions here. Additionally, in Trump news, uh, Donald Trump has finally formally announced that he did in fact want Mike Pence to overturn the election on January 6, 2021. Uh, this is coming in a statement released by the president regarding Congress's current attempts to reform a, you know, a sort of Byzantine law from the late 19th century that determines how electoral college votes are counted and the role of the vice president in verifying those votes and in getting the president's victory um, recognized by Congress, which is the, the formal process by which a person becomes the president. Uh, so now that Congress is looking into closing these loopholes, that Trump essentially wanted Mike Pence to jump through in order to prevent Joe Biden from becoming the president. Uh, Trump has now fully outed himself as saying that he, yeah, yeah, he, he, he did want Pence to stop Biden from becoming the president. Uh, he's saying that on paper now, totally, totally out in the open. Additionally, regarding electoral vote wrangling, uh, the Department of Justice is formally looking into prosecuting that, that's a big deal. They're looking into prosecuting people who posed as fake electors from states which they claim that Donald Trump unfairly lost. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the particulars of the United States Electoral College, the way that it works technically is that um, people in states cast their vote for president. And if a candidate gets the plurality of votes in that state, then the electors from that state who are individual persons go to Washington, D.C. to represent their electoral votes. Now, this is because the United States Constitution and a lot of the processes around electing the president are from not, not just the 19th century, but some of them are from the 18th century. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is just like formal now. But it does mean that in cases like this, where there's a contested election result, that electors from states can just show up to Washington, D.C. and claim to be the real electors. Now, this has happened on other occasions in U.S. politics, and it, it, it's related to a similar phenomenon called an unfaithful elector, in which an elector votes for somebody that they're not supposed to. You know, they vote for somebody that isn't the person who won their state's electoral college votes. But the important thing here is that the DOJ is looking into prosecuting people who showed up to Washington, D.C. and claimed to be Donald Trump electors from states that they think Donald Trump should have won. You know, we're talking Michigan, Georgia, the states that Donald Trump claims were stolen from him in the 2020 election. By virtue of posing as electors and by submitting fake election documents, these people are liable for criminal prosecution for interfering with election data, for perjury, for all sorts of things like that. Moving on from the United States and the continuous horse race that is figuring out exactly how the United States government is going to react to its first national attempted coup, uh, there's some news from Canada, uh, and this is the so-called Freedom Convoy a rally of Canadian semi-truck drivers opposing vaccine mandates. 
Now, the so-called Freedom Convoy has been moving from Western Canada all the way to the capital of Canada in Ontario. And they have been engaging in a lot of like blockading activity on their way. And they have been shutting down highway traffic, shutting down crossings between the United States and Canada, um, which they're doing, you know, let me remind you, in the middle of winter uh, in a place or in many places where shutting down border crossings at times like this, or even just like shutting down transportation is an extremely serious business, right? You know, they're they're really exercising a lot of political power here by trying to shut down transportation. And there are many small communities that have been very severely affected by this. Now, the so-called Freedom Convoy is also engaging in rallies in the Canadian capital. They are protesting at the capital buildings in Canada. And now most of these rallies have finished by now, um, but it is raising the specter of a sort of like January 6th type um, constituency in Canada, which many Canadian people had thought they did not have, which is uh, um, unfortunately naive. Uh, I would argue that almost every country in the world has the constituency that Donald Trump tapped into on January 6th. Of course, uh, coming as a surprise to no one, these right-wing protesters, people who were just protesting vaccine mandates in Canada, were displaying swastikas during their rally. And also, perhaps more confusingly, um, some of them displayed Confederate flags. That is, the flag of a country that was a rebellion against a country that they are not a part of. Mm, it's a little confusing, except when you realize, of course, that the Confederate flag is just a way to mark one's right-wing bona fides and also your racism. Speaking, unfortunately, of such things in the United States, on February 1st, that is the first day of Black History Month in the United States, dozens of historically black colleges and universities, typically known as HBCUs, received bomb threats in the United States. These universities, which predominantly are located in the south and southeast of the United States, um, had to close for the day. Uh, these bomb threats are not unprecedented, but the fact that so many of them were given and received on one day, and the fact that they were issued on the first day of Black History Month is obviously a specific racialized kind of violence. The FBI quickly found some people whom they consider possibly might have been the perpetrators of this string of false bomb threats. Oh, yes, uh, none, no bombs were actually found. Uh, the, these were just threats intended uh, to sow fear and um, to disrupt the education of black people in the United States. Uh, but the FBI is looking into a group of what it calls, quote, six juveniles, uh, whom they also say are, quote, tech savvy, uh, which I didn't know people said anymore. Uh, but anyway, uh, they're saying that these supposedly tech-savvy juveniles didn't exactly cover their tracks particularly well, uh, considering that they were able to be found out within a day. In any case, as this investigation unfolds and we learn more about the people who perpetrated this incident, we will likely learn more about their motivations other than the obvious racial ones, uh, or whether they were affiliated with any of the sort of likely suspect type organizations or networks of people who might have wanted to perpetrate uh, such a disgusting thing. And unfortunately, to close, speaking of such disgusting acts, uh, we now know that a person who 
um, committed a shooting in a school in Germany last week was in fact affiliated with a neo-Nazi organization. Uh, according to German law, this person's full name has not been released, uh, and that is, in my opinion, uh, relatively fitting um, regarding especially people's desire to get famous from their participation in mass shootings. He killed three people and injured some others. Um, this is an unfortunate reminder that even in a place like Germany, where people well, one would hope, remember exactly what Nazism is and what it causes in people's lives, that this lesson is easy, uh, all too easy to forget. Going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are staying in Germany, and we're talking about a man named Imo Maurice, an early Nazi friend of Hitler, and also, curiously, by Nazi standards, Jewish. Maurice was born in 1897 in Westermoor, in a part of Germany, uh, or what was then Germany, called Schleswig-Holstein, which is, you know, the, the very, very bottom of the peninsula of Denmark. Uh, so this is a part of Germany that was, well, it was Germany when he was born there. It's no longer Germany is the point. He was born to a family of watchmakers and was an early friend of Hitler's. He and Hitler both joined the German Workers' Party, the DAP, uh, which was a pre-Nazi German fascist party. He then joined the early Nazi party along with Hitler as Hitler's bodyguard and also his personal chauffeur. Uh, Maurice participated in the Beer Hall Putsch, which was Hitler's first attempt to take over the government of Germany. He was imprisoned along with Hitler and several other leading early members of the Nazi party. After prison, he joined the SS, which was originally conceived as Hitler's personal bodyguard unit. Uh, he joined the SS as member number two, uh, right after Hitler, who had membership number one. This was despite the fact that he was not actually in charge of the SS. That was, of course, Heinrich Himmler. And that's the interesting thing here. Uh, Maurice was not a particularly good administrator. He wasn't really good at all that much. Yeah, but he was an early friend of Hitler and an early adopter of German fascism. And so he was enabled to stay in the party in, you know, various just administrative type activities. However, it's from Himmler that he became this interesting case. Um, as the SS developed, they developed rules about membership. And the rule was that you had to prove your Aryan heritage going back 200 years, uh, that is, to the 1750s. And when Maurice's heritage was investigated, it was found that his great-grandmother was, in fact, Jewish. And not just anybody, but actually a relatively famous philanthropist and musician. This meant that technically he couldn't be in the SS, and he couldn't be in the Nazi party either. However, uh, despite Himmler's objection, Hitler made an exception for his friend, and he became, quote, an honorary Aryan. Maurice continued in various positions in the Nazi party, survived the war, and served four years in a labor camp afterwards for his participation in Nazi activities. Uh, he then returned to Germany to civilian life. He moved to Munich and ran a watch shop where he died this week in history, the 6th of February, 1972. So, Emil Maurice, we will see you in hell. 
All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. If you really enjoyed the podcast, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all in word and spelled out, like uh, with letters. You can get in touch with me at Twitter at Hist of the Right, or you can email me at 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. All right, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Yeah.